walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. Now, uh, as you know, we've been looking back at a different moment each day in News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades, chosen by you, the News Talk listeners. Uh, today, we want to talk about the 2018 Belfast rape trial. Uh, the case led to calls on both sides of the border for dr- drastic reforms in the treatment of complaints in rape and sexual assault cases. Uh, Tom O'Malley, barrister and law lecturer at NUIG, uh, chaired a review looking at the issues. He joins us now. Uh, Tom, looking back uh, a couple of years on from from this uh, Belfast rape trial, do you feel it was a particularly significant uh, moment, a, a particularly significant event? Well, you could say it was. I mean, if you were to look at it in strict legal terms, probably not. That it didn't. It wasn't one of these cases, if you like, that changed the law in any way, or that you know uh, developed any major point of law. You could look at it in a uh, I suppose, a legal way and say, well, this was just another trial where a jury acquitted a person, or in this case, in this case several people, of the offences with which they were charged. And that's by no means an unusual situation. I suppose what did make it unusual was not so much the trial itself as the level of publicity that surrounded it and the kind of questions that that publicity prompted. Now, again, it should be said that the circumstances of the North of Ireland were different to what they were here and to what they still are here, in that if it happened here, for example, that level of publicity probably wouldn't have taken place. Be- because we, we wouldn't have known the identity of the of the people involved in the case. Exactly. And I think that was probably the key factor involved. It wasn't just, you know, that it wasn't the nature of the, the alleged offence that made it noteworthy or indeed the identity, whoever it may have been of the victim. It was the identity of the four men involved, and I suppose two of them in particular, since they were well-known sportsmen, well-known rugby players. So that, I think, is really what made it... It's interesting that people picked it out as such a significant moment, but I think it was that kind of, I suppose, the combination of the identity of the people and the publicity it received that, um, you know, has still made it stick in the public mind. Were you uncomfortable as a as a legal practitioner? Were you very uncomfortable about the, the level of publicity the case got and are there lessons to be learned? Well, yes, I was, I suppose. Or certainly, I think if I was based in Northern Ireland, uh, I would certainly feel uncomfortable about it. Um, and therefore, I think there were lessons to be learned about it up there in terms of whether, in fact, the um, identity of accused persons should be uh, revealed during the trial itself. Um, now, there was, in fact, you mentioned that I was involved in a report down here, but there was a major report conducted up there by uh, Sir John Gillen, a former uh, senior judge, and he decided at the end of the day that uh, it was better to leave the law as it was and to allow people to be named, even you know, before they were convicted, mm. uh, you know, after they were charged. And that has been an ongoing debate as to whether, in fact, in sex offence cases, we should make an exception and, you know, allow uh, people to be named in that way. 
Okay, all right. Okay, uh, interesting stuff. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, Tom O'Malley, a barrister and law lecturer at NUIG. Stay tuned for more coverage of our series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments over the past 20 years. Uh, Pat Kenny is going to be speaking to News Talk's court correspondent, Frank Greeney, uh, who would have been covering uh, the trial back in 2018. <laughs> Well, now we want to turn to our special series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Every day we're looking back at a different moment as chosen by you, the News Talk listeners. Today we're looking back to the 2018 Belfast rape trial. It was a trial that captured the attention of the island and beyond. All four defendants, Paddy Jackson, Stuart Olding, Blaine McElroy and Rory Harrison, were found not guilty on all charges following a nine-week trial at uh, Laganside Crown Court in Belfast. News Talk's courts correspondent uh, spoke to me on the programme every day throughout the trial and uh, Frank Graney joins me once again to look back on what happened. Frank, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. Now, you were there, as they say, from gavel to gavel uh, throughout this trial. What is your own defining memory of it? The opening statement from the prosecuting barrister for the Crown Prosecution Service, Toby Hedworth, really sticks out in my mind because we had been anticipating that this would obviously be a big case. But initially, when I was dispatched to Laganside in Belfast, Um, You know, my feeling was that I would be there for the um, opening statements. Um, I would obviously stay there for the complainants evidence and then maybe return to Dublin and possibly go back if any of the accused took the stand and certainly go back for closing speeches and for jury deliberations, uh, obviously the closing stages. But as soon as Toby Hedworth um, took to his feet, um, and it was quite unusual because, as you can imagine, there were a lot of media there. And certainly in Dublin, you wouldn't be given a copy of the prosecutor's opening speech. But Toby Hedworth did pass them around the press benches and it was quite lengthy. I I still have it uh, in in my possession. And you could tell from the moment that he opened his mouth that I wasn't going back to Dublin anytime soon because this was the first time. And we had heard rumblings and rumours in the background in the lead up to the trial. But this was the first time that we knew all of the allegations that were made against Paddy Jackson, Stuart Olding, Blaine McElroy and Rory Harrison. Um, allegations, as, as you said in the opening, in your opening um, statement, that uh, these were all uh, acquitted of. But this was the first time that we got the full flavour of, of the prosecution's case. And I really felt after that moment, and this wasn't evidence, it never is, these opening remarks, it was just, I suppose, the prosecutor's roadmap as to how he was going to approach his case over the 43 days uh, that followed. Um, it wasn't evidence, but everybody um, on the islands seemed to form a view on the back of what he said. And I felt that people became very entrenched in their in their views. And just speaking to people outside of outside of the courtroom or indeed in, in, in the press rooms, you, you did get the sense that people had made their minds up very early on. And clearly there was a very long way to go at that stage. Now, uh, you know, you could anticipate whatever verdict um, that, you know, your bias led you to. But in the event, the uh, men were all acquitted on all charges. The aspect of the case, which was, I suppose, unseemly, was in a sense it became um, a place for voyeurism. Um, the public were allowed into this, not just the press. 
and um, there were people who just turned up every day purely out of this, as I say, voyeuristic streak. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, if there was a kind of an uncomfortable sense um, in course 12 at Laganside that this had turned into some sort of a spectacle for some almost a source of entertainment, it almost became like a sporting event uh, in itself, whereby you had in this large public gallery that held about uh, 100 people and you had people queuing outside the door um, every day uh, of that lengthy trial, uh, waiting to get into the public gallery, hoping to get into the public gallery. It was full um, every day of of the trial and it was particularly busy as the complainant gave her evidence and was cross-examined by the various defence barristers over the course of about eight days. It was quite full again when the four accused took the stand to give evidence uh, in their defence. And as you can imagine, as it entered closing stages, um, more media outlets um, travelled to Laganside. The public gallery, the queue outside seemed to get longer and longer. And uh, it, it was very uncomfortable for, uncomfortable for me covering it from the press benches. And, and I, there was one moment that really um, sticks out in my mind where one of the um, defence barristers had delivered his closing speech on behalf of his client, Blaine McElroy, who was accused of and subsequently acquitted of indecent exposure. And he had delivered his closing speech and the court broke up for the day. And I recall leaving to go back to the hotel to file for uh, the evening. And there was a member from the public gallery who stopped me as I was going down uh, the stairs. And he said he was he was very excited. You could tell in his voice he was very excited about what he just heard. And, and he felt that, that was the best closing speech that he had heard, the best one so far, he said. And I stopped and I just asked him, you know, what connection he had with, with the case. And he said none. He said he'd just come up from the day for the day from Waterford. He got the bus up from Waterford uh, to follow the proceedings. And that just didn't sit well with me. It left me feeling very uneasy. Um, and I know it is something that they're looking at up in Northern Ireland now, the possibility of potentially closing the public gallery. And I think that would be a right and an appropriate move. Yeah. Uh, some of the suggestions had, which have been made is that the cross examination of the of the witness, uh, the the woman who complained uh, to the police and upon whose uh, complaint the whole thing was based, that cross examination might be even pre recorded. Um, the press obviously would get to to see it. Uh, and whether the public would get to see it or not is another question. But, uh, you know, that would be done separately so that the actual ardour uh, of um, of actually having to testify in front of a court, even if you're behind a screen, um, doing that live, if it could be mitigated in some way by pre-recording. She was actually, passed. would you believe, she was actually given um, the opportunity to do just that. So her evidence would be given um, in the absence, obviously, of the public gallery, in the absence uh, of, of the jury, and then it would be played during the trial. So she was given the option of not going through the eight days uh, in the witness box as it transpired, and she turned down that that opportunity. Uh, obviously, we don't know why um, she did uh, decide to turn down the opportunity to give her evidence in in such a way. But I know speaking to some um, of the lawyers that were involved in the case um, afterwards, the suspicion was that when this evidence is delivered in, in such a way um, uh, through these uh, recordings, um, that apparently acquittal rates soar, that there is a feeling um, that jurors don't connect 
um, with, with a witness in the same way that they would when they're in the body of, of the court with them, that they almost feel like they're they're watching a TV show, that it's that it's fiction almost. What do you think the impact of that trial has been on uh, court reporting, uh, the, the, the pressures on journalists to get it right, um, and of course against uh, the, the background all the time of a very active social media um, coverage, which, you know, there's little or no control over in the moment? Well, certainly from my perspective, covering um, courts and, and, and legal cases down through the years, you, you, you do have that added pressure of always having to get it right because the consequences can be catastrophic. Um, you can bring down a trial, for example. You know, if you report something incorrectly, that could be seen as prejudicial. Um, nobody wanted to bring down the Belfast rape trial and it did attract um, a huge amount of media attention. Um, some journalists, some media outlets did find themselves uh, before the judge on various occasions, but the trial did trundle on. I found covering the Belfast rape trial um, from the very first moment that I stepped into court 12 in Lagonside to you know, the acquittals 43 days later, you could feel the weight of the country um, following our coverage, uh, listening to our reports, um, listening to you and I giving daily updates uh, on your show, watching the live tweets that I was doing from from the courtroom. And you could feel that enormous weight, uh, that enormous pressure to always uh, get it right. And I remember taking the lift one morning to the fourth floor at Lagonside where Court 12 um, sits and just before the doors of the lift closed, uh, Frank O'Donoghue, Stuart Olding's barrister, stuck his big black boot in to stop the doors from closing. And he joined me in the lift going upstairs. And he turned around to me um, during that journey up to the fourth floor. And he said, you're Frank from News Talk. And I said, yes. I said, you're Frank, um, Stuart Olding's barrister. And he said, that's correct. And he said, do you know what my wife and I do every night when we get into bed at the end of each day of the trial? And I thought... You know, perhaps this isn't the most appropriate conversation to be have having in the lift. And he said, we go through your tweets every day. We go through all the tweets and all the coverage of your trial during the day. And I was taken aback and I just said to him, you know, that I didn't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. And he said, oh, no, no. He said, it's a good thing for now. And the doors of the elevator opened. And what he was <laughs> telling me in the kindest way possible was that he was keeping an eye on our coverage, a very close eye. There were lawyers that were specifically assigned to keep an eye uh, on the media coverage. So there was that added pressure covering the Belfast rape trial. But I covered that trial like like any other. You know, you're giving a fair and an accurate and a balanced report of, of what you're hearing uh, during during the trial. And thankfully, that did go the distance. And again, uh, those four were acquitted in the end. Frank Rainey, News Talks course correspondent. Thank you very much for joining us. Today on News Talk, we are continuing with our 20 by 20 topic, where we look back at the 20 most influential moments of the last 20 years. The topic we're looking at today divided the nation back in 2018 and raised valuable questions over how we conduct rape trials in this country. It is the Belfast rape trial. The trial embroiled top rugby players with the accused Paddy Jackson, Stuart Olding, Blaine McElroy and Rory Harrison, who after 40 
two days, 30 witnesses, two snowstorms, one Six Nations and three hours and 40 minutes of jury deliberations were acquitted on all counts. Nolene Blackwell is CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and she joins us on air to discuss the impacts of this groundbreaking trial. Hello, Nolene. Hello, Claire. Hanoline, this case caused so many conversations around consent, about WhatsApp groups, about, as I say, rape trials are conducted. It really did capture the nation. And I say that in the full sensitivity that for us it was a discussion point, but there were real people at the centre of this case. That is so true. And one of the few differences at the time between uh, court cases for rape north and south of the border was that in north of the border then and now uh, the trials are conducted in public whereas for us we don't name those uh, charged with sexual offences in the higher courts rape and aggravated assault we don't name them until after conviction and sometimes not even then but it was and and, and in fact there's so many uh, trials for rape that happen in uh, Northern Ireland but we don't hear about them because it was the celebrity nature of the four defendants that um, made a talking point but actually the talking point over all those days, over the eight weeks before, uh, the, the verdicts came out on Wednesday of the week leading up to Easter. Um, but for the eight weeks before, everywhere there were discussions going on because there was a wide debate on what rape meant and what consent means. You know, because the case wasn't one about whether there was sexual activity, but rather whether the activity was consensual. And really it gave, it it gripped us all, I think. It it was almost impossible not to hear a conversation about this over over the time. And and there was a real challenge and often a generational divide about what was and what was not consensual sexual activity. And, you know, the court case itself said several times consent involves active agreement and anything less than that is unacceptable. But but what that constituted in this case was very much in the mix. I was mentioning there the, the Gillen Review um, and a number of, of people that took part in the trial looked at how the trial had taken place and made a number of recommendations. Have they been put in place now, Nolene, two years on? Yeah, so that's in Northern Ireland. And they, the Gillen Review came out in Northern Ireland about a year after the case. And they started to implement them. A lot of people working in the area would say they haven't happened as well as they would like and that they're too slow. Uh, but in fact, we were even slower because within a week of the decision, uh, the then Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, announced we too were going to have a review of the way in which uh, trials for sexual crimes were conducted. But our review didn't report until August of this year. So over two years later, uh, the very eminent Tom O'Malley conducted our review and came up with a lot of recommendations which recognised that people are vulnerable by virtue of the fact that they're talking about things that are the most intimate things that often you would talk about with nobody. So the review came out in August. Uh, the Minister for Justice, um, Minister McEntee, uh, ran with it. She, she said she was accepting the recommendations, set up an implementation plan. And you know the way government implementation plans can take forever. Well, hers took less than uh, three months. 
And right now, uh, the Department of Justice are working very hard to implement some recommendations, recommendations around giving people the information they need if they're going to report a sexual crime, giving people the understanding about where they might be entitled to legal advice, uh, how they might be entitled to better systems, how people can accompany them, how we should in, in many ways be allowing for people to be treated better than they are at present because currently if, if there is a contest about whether sex was consensual, then you have an accused person who is, you know, supported by a full legal team and a complainant who is really under supported. So to try and maybe in some way ensure that a complainant isn't thrown to the wolves in a sexual offence trial at the same time as preserving the rights of an accused person. Yeah, so some yeah. of the some of the things we're talking about now as well are could we make them go a bit faster? Because it's disgracefully uh, long to have to hold on to the kind of harm that's done by a sexual offence if, if, if it won't come up for ages. So look, we're making a good start now, but we are late to the game. You know, it is, it, 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 we, we, should, we should be making some progress by the time the three-year anniversary of the verdict comes up next March. And, and what was the reaction to was there a spike in calls to the rape crisis centre, for example? Did it have any knock on effect in the number of cases that then go to, to court? What was the kind of aftermath from the Dublin yeah. rape crisis point of view? Yeah, from our point of view, the most the most um, depressing thing of the weeks that followed were the people who phoned the National 24-Hour Helpline or can- contacted us and said, no way. Even during the trial, is it? No way are we going into the justice system if that's the way we're going to be treated. How could anybody be treated like that? People who, because it's already hard, it's never going to be, it's never going to be easy going to a, a, a and even the best, uh, the best trained Garda investigator in the world, the best trained prosecutor, you're telling them things, as I say, that you wouldn't tell your best friends often. And they're investigating it in the utmost detail. Yeah. But certainly, that the justice system took a hard knock in that case. It was shown that it was absolutely not fit for purpose. It is not the same thing to report the loss of your coat or your car as it is to report the fact that your dignity was assaulted and you were and you are subjected to the most intimate assault of all. So there's now some changes to be made. Not enough, we would say, Claire. <laughs> we can come back to that another time. But it was interesting that not only did the Justice Minister within a week say that we needed to review how rape trials were heard, but the then Minister for Education, Richard Bruton, also announced a review of how consent was taught in schools. And in 2018, he was able to say that consent and how healthy relationships were dealt with in school hadn't been changed for 20 years on the curriculum. So, you know, pre anyone even using the internet, hardly, let alone smartphones, and and that there needed to be a review of how young people 
uh, how their emotional development was looked after in schools. That hasn't been implemented yet either, but there have been some good recommendations came from the National Council for Curriculum Assessment and they need to be implemented as well because it's important and I, I love, the, actually I love all of the 20 events uh, of the last 20 years that New Talk is doing. They're really interesting, but this is an important reminder to us as well that this is an area that was traditionally hidden where people could not talk about it and where the law truly didn't want to get involved in in the area of intimate violence. And now uh, the law has to be involved because these are some of the most serious offences that can take place. And we must not have a system that really puts people off going to court in the the first place, because if that happens, those who carry out the offences get away with it. And that's not good for us as a society. Absolutely. Well, I hope that some of the issues that came out, not only from your report, but the Gillen Review do come into place because they are there to protect everybody involved from the accused to the defendant. And it just has to be done because it's supposed to be a justice system and people need to feel that they are getting a fair hearing and a fair trial and particularly in a vulnerable situation that they're handled with sensitivity. As always, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Nolene Blackwell, thank you very, very much. We want to continue our special series exploring the 20 most influential moments of the past two decades as chosen by you, the News Talk listeners. So every day across the station, we've been looking back at one of them. We've covered things like Saipan, Boom and Bust, Water Charges, 9-11, of course. Today, we're looking back at something a little more recent, the Belfast rape trial. Let's just remind ourselves of the outcome of that nine-week court case. It concluded on March 28th, 2018. Jerry, we have to break in across. We're getting breaking news from the Belfast rape trial. Uh, breaking news from our courts correspondent, Frank Graney. Uh, Paddy Jackson has been found not guilty of sex assault, not guilty of rape. Uh, also, uh, from the latest from Frank Graney, Stuart Olding has been found not guilty of oral rape. Blaine McElroy, not guilty of exposure. Rory Harrison, not guilty of perverting the course of justice and withholding information. All four defendants have been acquitted. We'll be back with more on this breaking news after the break. Yeah, that's how one of our reporters uh, reported uh, the uh, news on the day, March 28th, uh, 2018. The divisive trial, of course, opened up an awful lot of debate across society. And to look back on that and the implications of some of that debate and the influence of it, I'm joined by solicitor Michael Finucane and clinical psychotherapist Stephanie Regan. You're both very welcome to the show, folks. Stephanie, if I can start with you, what was it about this that grabbed the attention of the public so much? Well, I suppose the, uh, first of all, hi, Kieran. Um The first thing was that uh, we were exposed to an awful lot of detail of this trial, which um, isn't the usual uh, situation for us in the Republic. So that was the, that was the unusualness, I suppose, of it, that it was a high-profile uh, case. It was reported, uh, there was a, they were, it was possible to report on it in the North, and therefore we had, there was access to that. And, People then were, I think, really gripped by the detail, also by the fact that, of course, they were high-profile guys, people knew who they were. Um, Then I I always thought myself there's also the background, the backdrop you can't ignore was that the whole Me Too movement was really in full flow since October, the October previous. 
and that that whole swell of emotion was there and um women had really already been speaking out very strongly on the whole the whole sense of sexual harassment and 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 all of that so there was there was a kind of a readiness if you like in the public mind for uh, really analysing this in a very critical way. And I think that's where it got divided. That's where it really got a full hearing, if you like, in the public. Uh, um, and Michael, uh, in, in terms of the case itself and the the legalities of it, I, I, like, I suppose what, what was interesting uh, from, from people on the outside looking in is this wasn't a case where there was kind of uh, forensics really mattered, you know, that, that there was no that there was no disagreement about you know that, that sex had happened in this room it, it was a real case of kind of who you chose to believe almost for, for for the jury wasn't it yes i suppose it was and that really sort of drills through to the the nub of the problem uh these days in sexual assault and rape cases um the issue is very often not whether sexual intercourse or sexual contact occurred but whether it was consensual um, and that is the the problem that has frustrated legal systems uh, and lawyers and defendants and complainants in equal measure, uh, because you've got to try and come up with a way that balances uh, the rights and interests of the parties in cases um, to try and arrive at a, a reliable, sustainable verdict mm. uh, in, in a trial, but one that doesn't leave... <sighs> if I may be crude about it, you know, evidence of human carnage in its wake. Um, I think what the Belfast rape trial really highlighted was that systems need to respond uh, to the huge trauma and damage that can be inflicted uh, in the name of criminal defence uh, on on uh, extremely vulnerable complainants. Um, and in the Belfast trial is, is, is a clear example of it. I mean, this is, this is a girl who spent eight days in the witness box being mm. cross-examined by four different legal teams. I mean, many as a professional lawyer would quiver at the prospect of that. And here was a, you know, a, a, an ordinary person uh, looking down a very fearsome barrel of, of uh, four top legal and. And, uh, and, and unconscious, unconscious, Michael, we're, we're speaking about, you know, a legally a different jurisdiction with, with slightly different rules. But but to what extent was this a, a conversation and a debate that was already being had within legal circles and just this case kind of thrust that debate into the, the, the national spotlight? I don't think, and, and I may be wrong about this, but I don't think there was a huge conversation going on uh, about right. um, the the reform of the legal system um, in, uh, in in terms of, of the prosecution of rape cases, but there was a massive um, uh, discussion happening about the investigation of rape complaints um, and the way complainants were being treated, the way they were their their complaints were being. Uh, received the sorts of questions that they were being asked and how they were being made to feel. Um, there was perhaps a, a somewhat cosy sense of smugness among the, the, the legal system in Ireland anyway, because reforms had been enacted that uh, preserved the anonymity of all mm. parties and therefore gave some support to a complainant who at least wouldn't have, suffer the indignity of having their name all over the papers. Um, they could also uh, be supported by 
good victim support services, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, notably the work of the Rape Crisis Centre mm. in that regard, by making the courtroom experience a little less terrifying, even if it had to still be necessary. Um, the, is it still too terrifying, though, Michael? Like, have those reforms, uh, uh, some of them instituted before this, been, been, been have they gone far enough? I don't think you're ever going to really take the fear factor out of court uh, in, in in a criminal trial. But the accused is often just as terrified as the complainant. Um, what people what people fo- it's not a pleasant experience for anybody. Mm. Um, what people focus on, and, and rightly so in many cases, um, is the fact that the complainant uh, must give evidence and must submit to the process of cross-examination. Um, and I suppose the real challenge that for all of us, and the one that the Belfast Rape Trial brought into sharp relief, is finding a way to preserve the process of cross-examination so that a person's evidence can be tested, but not in a way that utterly degrades and humiliates a, a complainant uh, to the point where they are left in absolute tatters. Yeah, and, and Stephanie, to come back yeah. to you, like outside the courtroom as well, you, you talked about the context of Me Too, and afterwards, the the way so many things now, you know, as part of the culture wars or however you want to ascribe blame, they get mm. polarised immediately. You're kind of on one side or the yeah. other. And that happened here, didn't it? And it was really unhelpful. There was a kind of, I believe her or I believe them, you know, that that, that, that immediately Absolutely. happened. Uh, absolutely. And... Um I thought it was it was it was almost like the whole country convulsed into two sides. You know, I mean, even in my own small world, if you like, I uh, you you found in the company of women you you could barely express a view. Um, people were very very polarized, and um, it, it really showed to me as well that you know, and this why I mentioned to me too that there is a pool of sort of anger was sort of within women that was tapped into on this, this this sense of women not reporting and not speaking out. And I think that has, you know, that the Me Too and the I Believe Her, which became came directly on foot of the Belfast rape trial, I think it has brought things forward in that sense, even though I know what Michael says is 100% right. This was, of course, the huge... Um, anger point in this was how this complainant was being treated in court and how little uh, and how there was no uh, she wouldn't have been represented if I understand correctly um, uh, she wouldn't have been represented personally legally and so she had to just just be a, like someone who mm. would be cross-examined like a witness whereas after all of this and the um, the John Gillen Commission which which brought about and recommended some changes I'm not sure if all those changes are in in the north yet i'm sure michael will know but but the key thing that he recommended was this this importantly that the complainant would have access to legal aid uh, free legal aid really yeah. from the word go and that that person wouldn't be alone in that sense and would have some legal support yeah. I, I the, don't know if Michael has anything to say on that but that's my understanding is a very big outcome of it Is, is, is she right there is Stephanie right there Michael in terms of the outcome and the implication and the influence of this in the north Oh undoubtedly I mean the, the, the Gillen review uh, was uh, an extremely far-reaching piece of work uh, by the by the former uh, Court of Appeal Justice John Gillen, um, and it recommended a, a series of proposals, including interim proposals that the judge urged be uh, established immediately. Um, he 
some some of those things that should be said are are very well established here in 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 the Republic of Ireland. So, um, in a sense, I think there is better protection for complainants under the Irish system. Um, but interestingly, Judge Gillan rejected the. Um, uh, he rejected the the, uh, uh, the, the suggestion that defendants uh, should benefit from anonymity, mm. which on one level people might say, okay, that's fair enough. If you're in there, then you, mm-hmm. you you know you should be subject to public scrutiny. But the problem that that overlooks is that in many, if not most, sexual assault and rape cases, um, the uh, complainant and the accused know each other. Yeah. So therefore, yeah. if you know the identity of one, it's not really that difficult to work out who the no. complainant might be. And, and and Stephanie, to kind of to broaden it out as well, it's, it's one of the the positive consequences of this that I'm not sure how much we can say a change behaviour, but certainly it shone mm-hmm. a spotlight on. Uh, on the attitudes that existed still, you know, in, in some groups to to women and to sex and to relationships. Of course. Well, I think, you know, the some of the evidence prompted, you know, particularly of the WhatsApp uh, discussions. And I mean, people were I think men and women were really shocked and appalled by the kind of attitude that that seemed to display about young men, uh, you know, and their whole kind of conversations. I think that was a huge shocker for people. Um, and I think that prompted that whole conversation, which is a healthy thing. And I think, like everything, many, many years ago, if you think about it, you know, sexual abuse wasn't spoken of. It takes time in, in, in our lives for things to become, A, revealed, and then sort of to work its way into our whole social kind of uh, narrative. And I think that there has been that shift with this. People mm. are talking about consent. I mean, consent became the, surely one yeah. of the most talked about. It's now being taught in third level colleges it prompted that kind of thinking that that actually that people weren't clear i mean michael referred to it there in the legal sense you know how difficult it is within the court system but it also came out that actually lots of people perhaps every one of us had some sort of misunderstanding or slight confusion around it and so it was really good i think that that conversation yeah. was right well, out there let's say what we don't understand mm. and let's clarify it well listen i appreciate both of you for joining me today uh, stephanie regan clinical psychotherapist and michael Fanukan, solicitor uh, looking back at the belfast rape trial march 28th 2019 2018 should i say uh, when that trial uh, concluded as- <laughs> 